your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. The Gospel according to Luke. If you're looking and not familiar, then just go to the New Testament, the latter part of your Bibles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you will find us early in this chapter as we resume our study beginning in verse 26. And this morning, uh, the section that we're going to read is found in verses 26 through verse 38. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through verse 38. And if you would follow along as I read. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. When we pick up here in this account, we are now in the sixth month, not of the year, not of creation, but the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the relative of Mary. We don't know how closely related the two of them were exactly, uh, but we are told in verse 36 that they are, in fact, relatives. And thus, uh, the miraculous, unlikely pregnancy of Elizabeth in her old age is not to be the only one going on at this time in Israel. God's announcement to, uh, through Gabriel to Zacharias that his wife would have a son, a great son, in fact, named John the Baptist, it turns out is not an isolated incident, but instead is simply the beginning of a cascade of activity that God is beginning to do during this particular time in history about which we are reading. And the second person who is given an announcement about this is a young lady named Mary. Mary is someone that we don't know a whole lot about in terms of uh, her background, her childhood, her upbringing in distinction from anyone else in her nation at that time. But we learn more and more about her as we go throughout the scriptures. Nonetheless, this is our first introduction to her. And this is her first introduction to any of what is going to go on in her life. 
All of this comes to her, just as it did with Zacharias, totally out of the blue. She is caught off guard. And while we may look at this passage and say, well, of course, this is Mary. We all know what happens with her. She's the mother of Jesus. At the point when this narrative begins, she has absolutely no idea that any of this is going to take place in her own life. All that she would have known is simply that there were promises that God had made about a Messiah. That God had given promises of his kingdom. That God had done great things for his nation. And yet the fact that this would show up at her door and that would pick her to be the one through whom these plans found their realization is an amazing announcement that she only hears now for the very first time. And that is what we are getting in this text. It is an announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary. And what we find in this text are a number of things, but uh, really there are three particular things that we find as the overall sweep in this passage. First of all, we, we will find that God graciously gives to one of his servants a child, a great child, by the name of Jesus, that, she, that he blesses her with the opportunity to be the mother of none other than the Lord himself. We also find the greatness of that child, of Jesus Christ, which is told to us for the first time as we're introduced to the fact that this particular one is going to be special and that he is going to come in the flesh and that he is going to do all the things that are promised and then on top of that, we're going to find Mary's response to all of these things. Mary responds in a way that is exemplary for us. Not that we can imitate her steps exactly because none of us are promised to have or ever will have uh, the, the privilege of being the parent of the Lord Jesus. And yet her response is exemplary for us. Her response of faithfulness to God, of trusting God, of responding to God's word in the way that she does. And so even though the main thrust of this is showing that God is going to bring this son into the world, there are wonderful truths here about the grace of God, the mercy of God, and about how we as his people ought to respond to his word when it is brought to us. So we find here Gabriel's announcement to Mary, and we begin by looking at Gabriel's audience. Who does he come to speak to? And what is true about this particular person? It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Just again, by way of review, we find in the verses immediately preceding this, that in verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, became pregnant. Zacharias and Elizabeth were very old. As you know, if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, they were beyond childbearing years. Zacharias had been promised that he would have a child. And this was such an outlandish promise, such an impossible thing in human terms, that he told the angel, you're going to have to prove this to me. I don't believe you, he says in verse 18. How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And yet... According to God's promise in verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And for whatever reason, she hid herself for five months. She keeps this away from other people. No one can see that she is pregnant. But in the sixth month, that's all about to change. And in this sixth month, Gabriel is sent from God to this particular location. The location is a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Nazareth is kind of a nowhere city. It's up in the northern region 
of the nation, of the, the, uh, the territory of the nation of Israel in the region of Galilee. Galilee would have been more Gentile-oriented or more Gentile, uh, not so much infested, but inhabited. It may have been uh, viewed as infested by the Jews who lived there, who would have preferred to just have uh, this place to themselves. But it was far away from the capital city of Jerusalem, and it was far away from all of the temple activity that was going on. It was just kind of out there and small town, nothing very significant about it. Now here, Mary, we, uh, in addition to the location of this one, we also find her situation. And it says she is a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Now this simply refers in the most technical sense to a woman who has not had an intimate physical relationship with a man. And in many societies throughout history, this would have been a very large overlap with people who were not married. In our own day, it's more and more the case that that doesn't necessarily align Either way, Mary fit this category in both dimensions, um, which is simply to imply that she is part of the last group of people, the last group of women that you would ever expect to be pregnant. She is not involved in that marriage relationship. But even though this was the case, she was bound for that and she was officially contracted to become married. She was engaged. She was engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, in those days, uh, the way that they went about finding someone to marry was a little bit different than the way that we do it today. And some of you, if you were put back into that society, uh, in fact, maybe most of us, if not all of us, would balk against the way that this took place. Because what you had was largely uh, that this was selected by parents. It was done so according to certain customs. Uh, Walter Elwell helps us here. Quote, normally the young man's parents chose the bride. The resulting discussion about the marriage occurred between the groom's parents and the bride's parents, and often neither of the young people was consulted. Some of you young people today don't even like it when your parents don't ask you what you want for dinner. How would you like it if they didn't ask you anything about who they were arranging for you to marry? Uh, in addition to this, something called bride wealth had to be paid to the father of the bride, Again, quote from Elwell, in Hebrew families, it was also customary for the groom to bring gifts for the bride and for other members of the family, although it was unlikely that they were always as numerous and elaborate, uh, uh, excuse me, as numerous and elaborate as the gifts described for Rebecca, which was back in Genesis chapter 24. Um, the age at which this took place, at some point after Old Testament history, uh, at least the minimum age was set of 13 for boys and 12 for girls. Now this is not to say that Mary was 12 and that Joseph was 13. In all likelihood, Mary was somewhere in her teens if she was not still 12 years old, but she would have been young and perhaps considered very young by the standards of today. Now, none of this is prescriptive for our own day, and we need to be very careful as we approach these things, not only this particular passage about marriage and engagement and betrothal and all of those customs, but really anything else that the Scripture speaks to on this matter, because the practices varied from place to place. And if you want to say we want to have a biblical course of pursuing marriage, there are lots of principles in play, but there are also a lot of different approaches that were taken, and it's really uh, it is incumbent upon us to make sure that we don't look at scripture and say this is the biblical process for pursuing marriage there is no such thing 
on that account. There is nothing that says that if someone must be betrothed or engaged for exactly a year as they would have done at this particular time. There is nothing that says that you have to have your parents arrange the marriage or pay bride wealth or anything like that. These are all customs of the day, and they may have been their particular way of applying certain principles. In fact, many of them may have been very good, timeless principles that they're trying to apply in the way that they did. But nonetheless, we need to be careful about simply saying, well, this is what Joseph and Mary did. We must do the same thing today. Still, for her part, this is how it happened. And her bride price has been paid at this point. The marriage has been arranged, and they're officially locked into getting married, but they are not yet married. Now, for her husband's part, he is a man named Joseph. He is of the descendants of David, literally the house of David, which is just an expression that refers to that point of being a descendant, but it's more significant than that. It's not just as simple as everyone has a house, although they do, uh, a group of descendants that would come from them. But in particular, the house of David would refer to the fact that David was the king of Israel. The second king of Israel, in fact, and the first one that was promised to have a kingdom in perpetuity. We'll look more in a few minutes at the promise that David was given to have this throne in perpetuity. But the point is that Israel's kings and the kings of Judah, when the northern kingdom of Israel broke off from them, came from the line of David. For Joseph to be of the house of David was not just an ancestral record that meant nothing. In fact, he was exactly in the line of descent that would have had the rightful heir to the throne, as we read in Matthew chapter 1, when the genealogy of Jesus is traced all the way from David down through Joseph. So he's of the house of David. Um, because of a temporary glitch in Israel's unbelief and their being conquered and ruled by Gentile kingdoms, there is no current king of Israel according to that line. But nonetheless, the promise stood and the line continues through even Joseph at that time. So that's the situation of this woman. She is engaged to this man who is of the descendants of David, but they are not yet married. Uh, her identity, of course, is that her name is Mary. Her name is Mary. This is not an uncommon name. Uh, we don't have a last name, a family name, anything like that, but her name was Mary. And what we know about her and what we will find throughout this passage is that she is very different than the previous person who received a promise. Zacharias was an old man in a very respected, prestigious position, fulfilling his duty at the pinnacle of his priestly responsibility at the temple of God. Mary, on the other hand, was not a man but a woman, not as highly esteemed in status in such a culture, not even yet married, and was living in a small town in a remote part of the country with nothing described about her job or responsibilities at all. The two could not be more different in terms of perceived importance within society. And yet, the angel appears to her. And here we begin to get a glimpse into what Luke is going to show to us throughout this entire gospel account, which is a record of God's concern for people who are otherwise not noticed by society. People who are not considered to be impressive to other people in the world. And it's not that when we go through that we'll find that God somehow refuses to favor people who are in highly esteemed positions. And it's not that God automatically chooses to favor people simply because they are not perceived 
by others in the world as important. But he does show people favor in spite of what people think. He does show people a lack of favor and a lack of blessing despite the good reputation that they might have among others or the high esteem that they have among others. In other words, God's not really concerned in the ultimate sense with what anyone else thinks about you. God is concerned with what he thinks about you. And just because you don't seem important to the world doesn't mean at all that you're not important to God. And just because you might seem important to the world doesn't mean that you are in that way important to God either. So there is a drive that we have to be cared about, noticed, uh, to be impressive in the sight of the world, to have a high reputation, to be thought well of, maybe even to have all of the things that come with being known and noticed. And God says, those things don't really matter at all in my sight. What matters is how do I think of you and are you favored in my sight? Well, that's exactly what Gabriel tells Mary is going on with her. And this is what we find when we move on into the next verses to see Gabriel's greeting. Gabriel's greeting, verses 28 and 29. Coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. This is a little bit of a different entrance. Instead of simply standing there already when Zacharias goes into the temple, uh, here he enters in. Did he come through a window? Did he come through the door? He probably would be able to get in the door and have no trouble doing that. Uh, It's amusing to think of how he got in. We don't exactly know. But coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. Hello, favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessing has been bestowed upon you. He's giving her this good news. She is favored by God. No one may know her, no one may think she's impressive, but she has found favor in the sight of God, and God is with her. What a wonderful promise to have. And even if this was all she ever heard, this would be an incredible blessing. But Mary, of course, is surprised by this, and she doesn't really know what's going on. Why would he say this to me? Why is he talking to me about this? Why is he using this language with me? It says, but she was very perplexed at this statement. Well, she, very, she was very perplexed at this statement. And she might be thinking to herself, uh, am I really in a favored position? I mean, I am just a humble, lowly person who lives out in the country. Am I really someone who is blessed by God? Is there really something about me that is there? And why of all the things would this angel come in and say this to me? Why of all of this is this what he would say? Of course, we often think in these terms as well. We think that we are not blessed unless our current circumstances are blessed or unless we understand why God would say that about us. But instead, this is true regardless of whether she understands it. And so she's perplexed and she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the idea of this language here of kept pondering is that she's reasoning about this. She's thinking. As soon as she hears it, she's trying to figure out what does this guy mean? This doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. And so Gabriel explains. And in addition to explaining, he gives her an an encouragement that it's going to be okay. Let's look at what Gabriel says in Gabriel's message. Verse 30, Gabriel's message. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
It is amusing to notice this here, isn't it? Because there's nothing indicated in the previous verses about her fear. We might have thought for a moment that she was a little bit more courageous than than, uh, Zacharias. You know, Zacharias, the mighty man being afraid. And then Mary, you know, this young lady not being afraid of this scary angel who had come in. But as it turns out, that's actually not the case. And she was afraid as well. We just didn't get a note about it before he says this. But she was afraid, and the angel said, that's not why I came. I didn't come so that you would fear. In fact, I came to give you the exact opposite type of response. He begins by giving a message about Mary herself in verses 30 and 31. And he talks with her first about her status. Her status. He says, you have found favor with God. This is the last thing that you should be afraid of, is the things that I have to say to you. Because you are not someone that God is out to get. Rather, you're someone that God has already blessed. You have found favor with God. Additionally, he wants to tell her not only about her status, but also now about what God is going to do for such a one. And that is her miraculous conception. Her miraculous conception You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now, it could be, if you step back and look at this, you might say, well, that's not all that impressive. After all, there have been lots of people who have conceived in their womb and born a son. Say, well, that's really good to know. You know, I at least want to know that I'm not going to end up without having a son at all. So it could be that that is a little bit of a nice promise, but... Mary clearly understands here that he's not just saying that this is going to happen someday. He is saying this is going to happen and it's going to happen soon. And the reason we know that is because of her response where she says in verse 34, I literally, I haven't known a man. How can this be? She understands that he's talking about now in her current situation. And so what we find here is that he is talking about a promise that is going to be miraculous. And she has some instructions for when he is born. Her instructions say, you shall name him Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. This is exactly what Joseph was told in Matthew 121. When the angel comes to him later in response to his discovery that Mary is pregnant, he has these exact words, you shall name him Jesus. Now, in that case, the angel gives the reason for the name, which has to do with the fact that the, uh, the name is connected to the idea of saving and of the Lord saving. And he says that you shall save, or he will save his people from their sins. That's, Joseph, why you are to name him Jesus. But here, Mary is not told. We are simply told that she is to name him Jesus. What to name him? God has the prerogative to do this. Uh, He has the prerogative to tell someone what to name their child, and though he doesn't do it often, he has done this in the past in the Bible, and he does it here. So he talks about uh, Mary and what's going on with her, her favored status, the miraculous conception that she is about to have, and then her instructions once this takes place. But then he moves on, and he tells us some amazing things about this son who is going to come. Now, just as John the Baptist, who is predicted in the previous passage, was promised to be someone great, so it is here with the baby Jesus, who would grow into a grown man and do all the things that are here, but all the more. Back in chapter 1, we find, for example, in verse 15, about John, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. 
He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He'll turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He's going to go as a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John is going to be great and do some great things. But this one that's coming to Mary is even greater. So the message about Mary is what he first speaks of. And then he gives the message about Jesus. Beginning with this, his greatness. He simply says, he will be great. He will be great. And now I, I understand that we all look at this and you say, well, of course, how could you say anything otherwise? I mean, my son is great. All sons are great. All children are great. Who would say anything else about their child? But this one would be distinctively great. Great in the sight of other people. Great objectively. Great not just to his mother, but great no matter who you ask if, they're object if they are evaluating this objectively. He is going to be someone extremely significant. And of course the fact that we have this gospel account that we're reading right now indicates for us that this came to pass. His greatness is predicted. We're also told his title. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High. Jesus, this one who is going to be born, is fundamentally and uh, before anything else and even outside of his conception and outside of his birth, the son of God. He is the second member of the Trinity. And so he is the son, just as the father is the father and the spirit is the spirit. But he is also the son of God in his role, in the way that he exercises the offices that God has given to him as the God-man. We're going to talk more about that in a moment with connection to the next verse. But just understand for now when it says he will be called the son of the most high. There is the truth that there is the father, son, and spirit. And that Jesus is the son of God. But here also he is going to be called the son of the most high. In the way that he carries out his function in God's redemptive and kingdom history. Now how is that going to work out? How will this son of God actually then experience life? What's going to happen for him? Well, we learn in verse 32 next about his inheritance. His inheritance. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. You remember a few verses ago, we were told that Joseph is of the house of who? David. This is where all of this comes into play. One of the most fundamental Things to understand when you arrive at the New Testament is that God has made a number of promises in the Old Testament. And in particular, he has made a few covenants in the Old Testament. One of those covenants is with a particular individual by the name of David. And to look at this, I want you to turn back with me and look at where this covenant was first made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. Some of you uh, know this passage well, and I hope that's the case. I hope this is a familiar place for you. Uh, and I hope that if it's not already, that it will be after today. Uh, but in 2 Samuel, you have uh, this coming on the heels of uh, a little bit of a, a back and forth. In 1 Samuel, there were uh, kings, excuse me, there were judges that were ruling Israel. Samuel turned out to be the final judge of Israel. And at Israel's rejection of God, God said, okay. I will give you a king according to your request. And the first king he gave them was a man named Saul who turned out to be a poor fit for the job. And he was rebellious against God. And his 
kingdom was taken away from him and his line was taken away such that he would not have descendants to reign on the throne. Instead, it was given to someone who was called a man after God's own heart, namely David. And for the most of the second half of 1 Samuel, Saul is essentially trying to kill David so that David can't take over this job that he feels, and rightly so, is one day going to be his. Ultimately, Saul, as well as his sons, are killed, and David, uh, David pulls together and, uh, and establishes himself over the tribes of Israel as the king in the early chapters of 2 Samuel. So we get to this point in 2 Samuel 7, and I'll just read the passage. It came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Now, of course, what is that? That is the tabernacle that Moses had prescribed for Israel to build in the book of Exodus that God had given uh, and told Moses to have built. In verse 3, Nathan, the prophet, uh, said to the king, Go, do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? By the way, while we're here, do you note that The Lord being with someone does not validate every idea that they have. That someone finding favor with God doesn't mean that they can simply do whatever they want and that that is the Lord's will. Here Nathan brings a word from God and he says, you're not the one that should do this. Verse 6, for I haven't dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent. Even in a tabernacle, wherever I've gone with the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why haven't you built a house of cedar? says, David, you uh, have a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and will not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Great promise for the nation, for the king, and for ruling. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, David, this is going to be the case in your generation and then end. Second half of verse 11, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. You want to build a house for me, but who's going to be doing the building? It's going to be God building a house for David and not a physical house, but a kingdom house, a dynasty. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This promise then tells David a few things. Uh, It tells him that he is going to have a son who will come after him. And the initial one of these, who would turn out to be Solomon, would in fact build a house for God, a physical house. That's what it says in verse 12 and 13. But it doesn't even stop there. 
David's sons and his line are going to be something that continues on and on. So you have the initial promise of a son who would come after, of King Solomon. Then you have the line that would continue after that. And then eventually what you get to is one who is going to rule forever. There is uh, the acknowledgement that some of these sons along the way before the final one will sin. Verse 14, he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But that doesn't take away the kingdom like it did with Saul. King Saul rebelled against God. The kingdom was gone. But David's sons may do that. And the kingdom will continue to be promised to him and will stay in the line of his descendants. And ultimately that will be the case forever. There is a relationship that is described here in verse 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This is adopted, this language in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, where we are told that this applies all the way through to the son of David, and the writer of Hebrews applies it specifically to the final son who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ, and says that he has this particular name of son. And so this promise here is of a close relationship between God and this king, a caring relationship, one that looks out for him, one that where this king is sinful before the final one who is Jesus, uh, then he'll be corrected and disciplined and God's not just going to ignore his sin, but at the end of the day, the Davidic kingdom is going to be the ultimate kingdom. And so there was a recognition that began to take place throughout the Old Testament and even as those who, uh, among those who looked at the Old Testament after it had been finished in its writing, a recognition that there was going to be not just a continual line of kings who would be born and then die, but ultimately there would be one king who would come and reign forever. And that king is, of course, now being revealed to Mary as the one who is going to be her son, born of him. And so back in Luke 1, verse 33, it speaks of his rule. His rule. He will be given the throne of his father David, and it says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The house of Jacob referring to none other than Israel. We learned in the book of Daniel that he's going to rule over the nations as well. He is going to be the one that inherits all the earth. And yet he is specifically going to rule as king of Israel, of the house of Jacob. And it says that his kingdom will have no end. Psalm 89 verses 3 and 4, a messianic psalm, says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Psalm 89, verses 35 through 37. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. Now put yourself in Mary's shoes. Or perhaps not even wearing shoes at the moment. She's in her house after all. And you are told that you are about to have a child. You are not married. You're not expecting this. And this child is going to be the ultimate and forever living, forever ruling king of your nation. This is just about unbelievable. And perhaps to some, it would be unbelievable. Mary, for her part has a question, as you might expect. And this leads us to come upon 
Gabriel's explanation. Because Mary is confused. Mary is confused. Verse 34, she said to the angel, how will this be? Literally, how will this be since I do not know a man? She is uh, living on her own, or at least with her parents. They're, the marriage has not taken place yet. Joseph is not around. How is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Now, this is a question that demands our attention. How will this be? How will this be? It's a question that says, I don't understand how this is possible. And at first glance, you might be forgiven for thinking, you know, I've, I've seen this movie before. In fact, I saw this movie about five and a half months ago when Zacharias received a message from God. And he says, how will I know this for certain? Verse 18 of chapter 1. How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Both of these people seem to hear what the angel says and say, no way. No way. But really, when you look at it a little bit closer, it's an entirely different answer. Zechariah says, how will I know this for sure? In other words, he says to the angel, no way. Mary's question is, how is this going to happen? And her answer, her question is essentially saying, no way. Tell me more. He says, I don't believe you. And she says, Okay, explain this to me. Both things are impossible in human terms. But Zechariah's response is, I'm going to need to see some proof. Whereas Mary's response is, can you just at least satisfy my curiosity about how all of this is going to happen? She doesn't doubt what God has said is true. She doesn't doubt that it's going to happen. She doesn't doubt that he's going to be conceived and born. She just doesn't understand how it's going to happen. She just doesn't get the how, the mechanics. doesn't make sense to her. But she doesn't say, it won't happen, or you need to prove this to me. She just simply asks, how? And the answer that Gabriel gives will show us that he is more than happy to accommodate such a question. Before we hear what he says, we need to make no mistake here. This is impossible apart from God's intervention. Mary is not wrong about the need for miraculous intervention in this situation. There is no natural way this would take place. And this here is an indictment of all of those who would try to say that Jesus' conception was in some way natural, that it was not supernatural, that it was not truly miraculous. There are people who have for many, many years tried to claim the name of Christian and tried to hold to the fact that they're orthodox. And maybe they're a little bit moderate or maybe even a little bit progressive. But yes, we're Christians. We just don't necessarily believe that Jesus' birth came about in this way. That's just a little bit ridiculous, don't you think? A little bit ridiculous that this would happen. I mean, that's a bold claim to say that this kind of a miracle would take place. And yet they would like to be numbered among those who believe in God's people. And they look for ways to undermine this. They try to go to Isaiah chapter 7 and undermine the nature of that prophecy. And they don't just do that. They try to come here to Luke and to Matthew chapter 1 and say, well, that's not really what that means. But it's very clear from Mary's response. It's very clear from the way the angel is going to describe how this comes about that it very much is a miracle. This is a miraculous conception, supernatural. It is only by the work of God. Do not be fooled into thinking that you can reject this text and hold to an orthodox view of who Jesus is. He tells what this child is going to be. He responds and he says, 
what will happen to Mary. What's going to happen to Mary? Verse 35, how will this take place? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Very interesting uh, Trinitarian activity going on here, is it not? The power of the Most High overshadowing you, the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and then you have the Holy Child who is going to be conceived in this particular moment. Now, we see these things, and there are some things that we can, uh, that we can understand and we can pull together about the nature of the Trinity and what's involved here. Uh, but we do have to admit that there is only so far that we can go into a kind of understanding just in terms metaphysically of how this all actually works out. Uh, Mary gets an answer, but there are a lot more questions she could ask that she just simply wouldn't understand because she's not God. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is going to be a supernatural birth. God is going to make this happen. But how does that actually take place even on a more specific level? We can only speculate. What happens, or what matters is that it happened, that God is the one who did this, and that because of this, uh, the Holy Child, this special one, will be called the Son of God. He will be called the Son of God. Now, uh, there are a lot of promises about the Son of God in the Old Testament with respect to the Messiah of Israel. The sonship is going to be a role that the Messiah carries out. And again, it's in keeping with the promise to David that David's son would be a son to God. In fact, there is a promise to the ultimate ruler that he would be a son of God and would inherit the nation. Psalm 2 verse 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, but there's something here that is distinct about this son, also in his very nature. He fulfills the role of the son, but he is also the son of uh, this Jesus is going to be called the Son of God in the person of the God-man by virtue of how he comes to be born. He doesn't just execute the role of Son, but because God is the one who has been involved in bringing him into the world as a man, so also he will be called the Son of God. You can see here that there are many dimensions involved in this title. He is the son of God ontologically by virtue of being the second person of the Trinity. He is the son of God in his role as the Messiah. And he is the son of God by virtue of the fact that he was supernaturally conceived by the power of God. So when we see that he is the son of God, there is a richness to this. Multifaceted, not one over the other, not one against the other, not one instead of the other. But rather that he is the son and this is his identity. And it has a number, a beautiful tapestry of the different things that are true about the Lord Jesus himself as God's son. But he says, how is this going to happen? Well, I'll tell you, God's going to get involved, supernaturally going to make this take place. And he says, if you want a little bit of proof, let me show you that something else has gone on lately that you may want to be aware of and that you can go and verify. Verse 36, behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. Now the secret is out. She's hidden herself for five months, but it says she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. So her barrenness, her former barrenness, the fact that she has never had a son, never had a child, is combined with the fact that she is in her old age and she should not be able to have a child, and yet she's six months pregnant or five plus months pregnant. So this is 
another example of the fact that, Mary, you're asking the question, how's this going to take place? Well, he says God's going to get involved. And just in case you're tempted to doubt this or if you want some additional proof, let me just show you. Elizabeth herself also is pregnant, even when it is humanly impossible for this to be the case. And, of course, this is because of what he says in verse 37 about what is possible with God. He says nothing will be impossible with God. This is such an amazing, all-encompassing statement that he brings in for this particular situation. But it's one that we can take and apply to every situation, can we not? All things are possible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. We think about the scripture where uh, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciple says, well, that raises a problem because then nobody can be saved if that's how hard it is. And Jesus says, well, yeah, that's true in natural sense, but with God, all things are possible. What does that mean? That means that no one, no matter how hard they would be naturally against the gospel, is outside the realm of savability. God can save anyone, and as we can all attest and would attest, if he can save me, then he can save anyone Salvation is possible for all people with God. We read in Ephesians chapter 3 that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can what? Ask or think. It's not just that anything we can think of is possible with God or anything that we ask him. It's that anything that is even beyond that is possible with God. All things are possible with God. Now this does not mean that all things are possible with God, and therefore, if we simply just believe hard enough, or if we just choose something and say, I want that, and we act in what we sometimes call faith, even though God hasn't promised it, it doesn't mean that God will do that. This is simply speaking about God's ability, not about what he has said he's going to do. And we don't want to get ourselves in trouble by thinking that God can do something presuming that he will do that something because he's able and then putting our hope in something that then lets us down, which then tempts us to say, well, maybe God isn't that powerful after all. We don't want to make that mistake, but we can see that anything is possible with God. So when things are hard, where do you go? When your circumstances seem difficult, where do you go? The Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can handle any circumstances, not on my own, but through him who strengthens me. Anything is possible with God. When someone is sick, when someone is hurting, when a situation seems like there is no way out or no way forward, where this simply will not happen, we need to remember, nothing will be impossible with God. And the fact that Christ is, is conceived in this way tells us truly that Nothing in this world that God has made is impossible for the all-powerful God to do. So he demonstrates that this is going to happen. This is not at all outside the realm of possibility. In fact, it is well within the realm of possibility. It has already happened for Elizabeth. And even if it hadn't, there's nothing that God cannot do. Well, let's look at the close of this section in verse 38 at how Mary responds. And it's just a beautiful picture Mary's submission is what we'll call it. Mary's submission. Mary said, here's her response. She's asked a question uh, already. She's got a satisfactory answer to this question. And she says, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. The bond slave of the Lord. We uh, 
don't really think very highly about being enslaved to someone. Of course, generally speaking, that's because the people that would enslave us are going to make us do things that we don't want to do. And they're generally not going to be viewed as benevolent toward us. There is, of course, no one who is as benevolent as the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, Christians have become his slaves. In Romans 6, we learn that we have been freed from the slave master, the owner of sin, who paid us nothing for our work except for death and shame. And we have been enslaved to Christ, enslaved to God, who gives us nothing for our work because it has nothing to do with our work, but he gives us the free gift of God, which is eternal life. Becoming a slave of God means that you get eternal life the moment you become a slave. And then you do what he says out of joy and out of gratitude. Yes, out of obligation because you're a slave, but the gift is free. And what a glorious thing it is. Mary says that she herself is the bond slave of the Lord. And there is in this reaction um, submission to God's will. She moves from perplexity in verse 29. She doesn't know what's going on. To curiosity, wanting to know how all this is going to happen in verse 34. And now to humility. Now to humility. She does want this to happen. She says, may it be done to me according to your word. This does seem to indicate that there is a great blessing involved. And we'll see this very much so when it comes to uh, her praise beginning in verse 46. This is not a bad thing. This is an incredible blessing. And she isn't simply scared about this or simply kind of... uh, trepidatious about what's going to happen but she does recognize that she is being told what will happen and there is an element here where she is saying not my will lord but yours do whatever seems best to you and so she moves from perplexity to curiosity to humility she says look at me and see i'm willing to do whatever the lord says think about As much as there is so much blessing involved in this, think about the challenges that would have been involved in this. She's going to have questions for her. What happened, Mary? What's going on? This could threaten her relationship with her groom-to-be. And in fact, we learn from Matthew chapter 1 that it very much does threaten that relationship. And apart from literal divine intervention, she would have lost him as he was planning to send her away. Her reputation could have been in trouble. Maybe this isn't what she wanted in the sense of having a child at the age where she was. There are all kinds of things that could have been going through her head. But what did she say? Lord, whatever you say, I am your slave. I am the servant of the Lord. What an example for us. As we look at the circumstances of life, as we look at the word of God and we say, you know, I don't want to respond to this way. I don't want to respond to this situation in the way that you describe here, God. I don't want to trust you through this. I don't want this to be my lot in life. I don't want this to be the way that people treat me. And yet, this is what you have ordained for me. And this is how, in your word, you've told me to handle such a situation. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. This is who I am. And we ought to call out over and over that this is the case, not as some kind of a strange recital to uh, beat this into our head, but this ought to be the attitude that we have. We are the Lord's bond slaves. And she says, may it be done to me according to your word. Both a resignation to what God has said and submission and a wish that all of the good parts of this would come true. 
the angel departed from her. The angel departed from her. Do you see God's grace on display coming to this young one, coming to this one, calling her favored, showing such blessing upon her? Do you see the glory of Christ as he is coming into the world, predicted to be this great one, greater than anyone else, even before he is born, even before he is conceived? And do you see what it's like for a, someone who is a faithful servant of the Lord, trusting him in these things, to respond to the word of God? These are some things that we should take away as we go from here. And as we look forward to hearing how Mary responds in greater ways moving forward, we can praise God for this wonderful intervention in her lives for the sake of us, his people. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you that you are uh, the one who graciously came into Mary's life to show your favor to her, to show your supernatural power, and most of all, to bring this amazing son into the world who is the one we now know as our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we honor him as the son. And in fact, this is our duty as he has said that, that all would honor the son as the father ought to be honored. We pray that we would worship him. That you would help us to submit gladly to him, to praise him, to love him with all our hearts. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.